So for the past few weeks, we've been taking a pause from our study of the book of Romans. And right now, we've just been looking as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christ's incarnation. We've been talking about His role as our Savior. And we've been talking about some of the things that He does in that role. And today we're going to continue doing that by looking at the fact that Scripture teaches us that heaven rejoices when the lost are found. So Christ finds the lost. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. If you would take your Bibles and open up with me to Luke chapter 15. This is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. By the way, I always find it funny to say this is one of my favorite portions of Scripture because then I'll get to another portion of Scripture and I'll be like, well, that's also one of my favorites. And that's kind of my favorite too. So this is one of my 65 favorite (laughs) portions of Scripture. Uh, But we're in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says in the passage. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning. And we're grateful, Lord, that over the course of this month, that we've had the privilege to just think about the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And Lord, we've been looking at various scriptures that remind us of his saving role. The fact that he's our rescuer, the fact that he's our redeemer. And Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today that reminds us that heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Lord, we're grateful that you've brought this to our attention. We're grateful that we have a little time this morning to just spend thinking about the nature of what you're speaking about in this portion of your Word. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you, and we thank you for the privilege to be able to uh, just be open vessels that your Holy Spirit can speak to. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in high school, that's when I started driving. I started driving my junior, uh, my junior year of high school, and I got my license in the month of December. And I remember how excited I was to get my license. I remember how excited I was to be out driving and, and uh, you know, just able to navigate those things by myself. And the first longer trip that I ever took was to go to my grandmother's house 
and to give both my grandmother and my aunt a ride to our home because they were going to spend Christmas with us that year. And my mother was nervous about me doing this, but she also needed me to do this to be able to facilitate all the things that she needed to do. So my part in the puzzle in putting it all together was go and get your grandmother and your aunt and bring them here for Christmas. So off I went. And I drove down to see them. And it's interesting because as a passenger, I had, uh, I had driven that route many times all throughout the course of my life. I'd driven that route from our house to, to where my grandmother lived more times than I could count. So you would think you would have it completely committed to memory. But roads look very different when you're a driver than they do when you're a passenger. And I, was, I made the drive. And uh, unfortunately... I made an error very early in this journey, and instead of staying on one particular highway that I was supposed to stay on, I ended up at a merge point getting on a different highway. And so I was driving on that highway for a while. My grandmother's house was an hour away, so when I got about an hour into that journey, I thought, all right, um, her exit should be here somewhere, and nothing looked familiar to me, but in my mind, I thought, well, it's just because it's dark. It's dark. That's why you're not noticing anything. But then it finally dawned on me, you're, you're, you don't even know where you are right now. You're not in any place that you have ever been. You need to pull over and find out where you are and how to get to where your grandmother lives. And so I pulled over, and some people helped me figure out where I needed to go, and I discovered I was very far away. Very far away. It was going to take me a while. And um, so I continued the drive. I finally got to my grandmother's house, discovered that they were terrified and worried because it had been way longer uh, you know, than what they had expected me. And uh, she called my mother and said, he's here now. And uh, I, I learned a lesson. I never made that same mistake as far as driving to their house. Again, you know what I do now, though? I get into the music that I'm listening to on the radio, and then when I snap out of whatever song I'm in, I'm like what exit am I at? (laughs) Oh, good. I have to turn all the way around and go back to the exit that I was supposed to be at. But getting lost is not a pleasant thing. That's something, and it doesn't happen quite as much now that we all have GPS on our phones and things. Back then, I didn't have that luxury. Um, But getting lost, when you get lost, it's not a pleasant experience. And I'm bringing that up because when we're looking at the Scripture that we're looking at today, it talks about lostness, but it's not talking about getting lost directionally in the sense of, you know, traveling from one place to, to another. The Scripture that we're looking at makes some illustrations, and we just read them just a moment ago, but it illustrates what it looks like to be spiritually lost. To be spiritually lost is the worst thing. And the Lord does not desire that you or I remain spiritually lost, spiritually distant from Him. It was because we were spiritually lost that Christ came to this earth to find us, to rescue us, to save us. And during the course of Christ's earthly ministry, many people were critical of Christ's heart for lost people. They were critical of Christ's desire to reach into the lives of lost people. But when you look at what this Scripture tells us, and you take it with the totality of what the Scriptures teach, the Scripture shows us that heaven rejoices when the lost are found. But there's a process here that the Lord illustrates in this portion of Scripture that I want to point out to us. And one of the things that Jesus demonstrated, while also demonstrating that heaven rejoices when the lost are found, one of the things that He demonstrated here 
is that there are going to be critics that you will experience in your life if you start prioritizing lost people. And one of the things that Christ teaches us here and He shows us, and I think this applies to multiple areas of life, but one of the things that He demonstrates here is this idea that we should not let critics set our agenda. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It says this, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. So picture these people, they're all drawing near to Christ. People that in their community, in that context, they don't have a great reputation. We even referenced this group of people several weeks ago, but it says the tax collectors and sinners, they're all drawing near to Him. And then it says in verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, can you just hear the sneer in their voice? They're like, this man, this man, he, 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 do you see who he hangs out with? They're grumbling against Christ. And um, in this portion of Scripture, we could see that Christ does not let critics set his agenda. Now, in our present day, so think about the context that we live in right now. Who would you say is most familiar with the content of the Bible? In our present day, would you, would you assume that it might be pastors or maybe a seminary professor or maybe uh, authors that, that, you know, write different things about the Scriptures, or maybe even older Christians who have spent decades and decades reading the Scriptures and committing the, the Word of God to memory. And I bring that up because I always find it very interesting to observe how people reacted to Jesus during the course of His earthly ministry. I think it's oddly fascinating to realize that those who at least visually seemed to know the Scriptures best also seem to be the people who are most uh, distant and critical of Christ. Well, you also have those who don't really seem to be placing a whole lot of value on the teaching of the Word of God flocking to Christ. Doesn't that seem like the opposite of what you would have expected? Wouldn't you have expected the people that seem to be most familiar with the Scriptures to be most happy to see Christ? But yet, in this particular context, it was the opposite. And that dynamic is at play right here in Luke chapter 15. You have the Pharisees and you have the scribes. And by the way, to be a Pharisee or to be a scribe, you had to have major portions of the Bible memorized. You know, we live in a day and age where you could just get a printed copy of the Scriptures, or even easier than that, in this digital age, uh, you could just have a copy of the Scriptures accessed digitally wherever you can access the internet or a smartphone. And I have to tell you that (laughs) frequently I find myself reading the Scriptures from a digital platform more now than I actually do from a printed page, because I've always got my phone in my pocket. And my phone has the Scriptures on it, and so I could just access the Scriptures. And in that context, they didn't have easy access to the Scriptures like we have now. In some areas, there'd be a copy of the Scriptures that had to be shared by many, many different people. And so one of the rules, if you were going to become a Pharisee, if you are going to be a scribe, you had to commit major portions of Scripture to memory. But yet, ironically, this group of people who had to commit major portions of Scripture to memory didn't recognize the fulfillment of prophecy when it was taking place right before their eyes. So this was like an academic exercise for them. You know, they were, they were committing the Scriptures to memory, but their hearts were not engaging with what they were reading and what they were memorizing. And then on the other hand, you have the tax collectors, and you have the sinners, and these are people that you know, the sinners is just like this umbrella term for those who have terrible reputations in the midst of their community. And these people seem to be running to Jesus and receiving His teaching gladly. 
and they joyfully are dining with him. And this isn't the only portion of Scripture that gives us an example. When you look throughout the Gospels, you see this happen over and over and over again. This is the group of people that comes and flocks to Jesus. This is the group of people that runs to Jesus and wants to spend time with him, and they don't seem ashamed at all to be seen with him in public or to dine with him in private. They just want to be there with him. And oddly enough, I think that dynamic is still at play. This world, because here you have these, these people that really should have had their act together, that are overly critical and unjustly critical of Jesus. And this world, and sometimes even in the church, you'll find critical people. Now, critical people in our day, they have something in common with critical people during various eras you know, eras that, that uh, existed, you know, prior to us. And the, the commonality is this. They are so convinced of their own self-righteousness that they begin to minimize their need for Christ's righteousness. And they begin to criticize anyone that doesn't meet their artificial standard of perfection. So if you're convinced that you have righteousness in and of yourself apart from Christ, what you end up doing is you minimize the need for Christ's righteousness, and then you set up your own standard of perfection outside of what Scripture actually teaches, and then you start taking shots at those that don't meet that standard. That's what was happening to those that were living during the the era that Christ was doing ministry in. That's what he was experiencing from some of these critics, but that's what we will experience during this era as well from people who have hearts that resemble the scribes and the Pharisees referenced here in this passage. And so Jesus is dealing with all of that here in this passage. He's being criticized for associating with people who had colorful reputations, and he was being criticized by people who had an agenda. You ever take that into consideration when you're on the receiving end of criticism? Every one of us, I'm sure, in this room has received criticism of one kind or another. But do you ever sit back and just ask yourself, what is the agenda of this critic? And Christ is here being criticized by those with an agenda. Don't be shocked if you experience something similar, if you're someone who is intent on following Christ. Don't be surprised by that. I have to tell you, and I'll say this somewhat anonymously, um, but uh, within the, the course of the past year, uh, a pastor that I know and his wife asked me if they could uh, just just meet up and have some conversation. And I said, sure. And one of the things that they, they wanted to talk about was the fact that they just felt so beat up by all the criticism that was being levied at them, and they needed somebody safe to vent it to. And so we prayed together, and we talked about it. And you would think that that would be like an anomaly. You would think that that might be like a shock But it wasn't a shock. Throughout the years, I've experienced many friends in ministry that have experienced that very same thing. And they've confessed the harsh nature of some of the criticism that they've received as they've served the Lord. I've experienced that as well. It's not just other people. I've experienced that at different times. And I I remember when I was a brand new pastor, I'd only been a pastor for just a couple years, it dawned on me, I was like, wow, prior to becoming a pastor, I don't ever remember receiving this much critique or criticism. And the second I, you know, kind of put my hat in the ring, all of a sudden the arrows start flying. And I was like, 
if I'm going to last in this, I'm going to somehow need to learn to deal with this. And I remember one of the things that the Lord encouraged me to do is to simply just follow his example and look at what he did in the Scriptures. Like, what did Christ do? How did he respond when he was, when he was receiving that kind of unjust criticism? How did he handle it? It was one of the earliest lessons that I had to learn in ministry so that I could actually continue to do it because I'm one of those people that actually likes people. And when you like people, what, what you kind of want is for them to like you back. And when you realize, you're like, wait, what? you start thinking to yourself, why doesn't that person like me? I, I feel like I'm nice to that person. Well, like, what, like, why are they such a critic? It's like, I, th- I think I've only ever been nice to that person. But then you realize there's an agenda sometimes. And when Christ was receiving this criticism, had Christ done anything wrong? Had he done anything wrong uh, or, or sinful or deserving of the criticism? Not at all. But in this context here, you have these Pharisees and you have these scribes and they have an agenda. And again, to make this personal to us, keep this principle in mind. The greater risk you take to openly serve Jesus Christ, the more arrows you're likely to receive. Don't let that dissuade you from serving Christ. Just be aware of it. Just be aware of it. The greater risk you take to openly serve Christ, the more those arrows are going to come in your direction. But always look back to Christ. Look back to the example that He gives us in His Word. Look at how He handled these things so that we'll know what to do when our time comes, right? Jesus understood His mission. Jesus knew what He was here to do. He understood the timing of what He was here to accomplish. And with all that in mind, he did not let the critics veer him off course. He didn't let the hard-hearted and self-righteous critics with a selfish agenda set his selfless agenda. He knew what he was here to do, and so he did it. Now, forgive me for referencing Teddy Roosevelt again, because um, I know that I've done so at least one other time this year and at least 100 other times over the course of my life one of my favorite historical figures uh, to study. And whether you like Teddy Roosevelt or dislike Teddy Roosevelt, one thing that we would all be able to agree about was that he wasn't the type of person that just sat around on his hands waiting for other people to do things. He was the type of person that looked at what needed to be done and threw himself into the ring. He was a doer. He was somebody that was a person of action. He would take action when action needed to be taken. And one of the most famous quotes that uh, I've heard it referenced many times, I'm certain uh, many of you have probably already heard this quote, but one of the most famous quotes that, that seems to get circulated related to criticism is something attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. And it's a little bit long, but I want to share it with you. And this is what it says. He said, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. 
so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Now, he was sharing that in the context of life a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago, and some of the risks that he was taking during the course of his leadership. And he had military leadership, and he had political leadership, and he also had some business leadership. And just by virtue of his personality, he was the type of person that tended to find himself in leadership roles. But when you take the kind of risks that he took, you're going to receive some critique. When you look at what the Scripture tells us about what Christ was doing, Christ was irritating some people that didn't want to be irritated, but they needed to be stirred up. Because you have a group of people that instead of pointing others toward the Lord, they were actually dissuading people from following the Lord. And here you have Christ coming to seek the lost, but those that don't really have a heart for the lost to be found begin critiquing Him. And they begin pointing things out about him that were really just meant to slander him or damage his reputation. And you have Christ looking at what they're saying, recognizing their agenda, and saying, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing anyway because I understand the mission for which I'm here. How closely are you seeking to walk with Christ? Or I could ask this as a group. How closely are we seeking to walk with Christ? And as a follow-up to that, let me ask this. Has he ever prodded your heart to do something that others just didn't understand? And when you listened to him, what did you do when your critics emerged? Did you stop listening to him and start listening to them? Or did you keep listening to him even when it got hard to listen to him? Critique from those who love you is helpful and is valuable, and is one of the most useful tools that you or I will ever receive as we seek to be followers of Christ. That kind of critique is helpful, and we should always welcome it from those who love you, from those who seek the best for you. But criticism that's meant to harm you, from those who sit on the sidelines just kind of waiting for you to fail, that should not be the dominant voice that you allow your heart to hear. Don't let that be the dominant voice that you allow your heart to hear. Critique from those who sit on the sidelines waiting for you to fail. Christ didn't let his critics set his agenda, and neither should we. He continued pursuing the lost, even though there were those that were trying to stop him from doing so. Well, this Scripture gives us another example of what Christ was up to. And here in this portion of Scripture, it... it, it, It should say Jesus isn't waiting for his sheep to find him. That's a a typo. Jesus isn't waiting for... It's my fault. I typed up that slide, all right? So Jesus isn't waiting for his sheep to find him. So just refer to the printed bulletin, not to that slide. That's an error, all right? But look at what it tells us in chapter uh, in, in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 3. You have Jesus saying, he, he shares a parable here, and it says, So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, let me say this as we kind of look at at what Christ is continuing this thought by saying here. One of the most effective ways to illustrate a point or to teach a principle is with a story. A story is one of the most useful tools that you could utilize when you're trying to teach or communicate something because our minds, they, they tend to remember stories because a story impacts us on multiple levels. So we'll learn information, but yet at the same time our emotions will be tugged and our desire, to be, uh, our desire to take action will get stirred up at the same time. And a story is an effective device to accomplish that. And when Jesus taught, he would often use short stories or parables to try and make his point. Sometimes he, he said that he would do this to try and conceal information from those critics. But other times he would do this to help confuse people to gain an understanding of deeper truths. And that's what he's doing here in this portion of Scripture. So in this passage of Scripture, you have Jesus telling a story about a shepherd. Now keep in mind, he is often referred to in Scripture as a shepherd. And in this case, he's speaking to leaders who were supposed to be leading the people uh, who who were under their care with hearts like shepherds, even though those leaders weren't doing so. But how many sheep... Now, I have no personal experience on on sheep herding, okay, or shepherding, right? Never, I've never done that, okay? I don't even want that experience. Some of you, that would be a dream job. Um, for me, I, would, I don't think I would enjoy that. I, I prefer working with people. Um, although some people are like, please, you don't know that, like, <laughs> it's so much better to work with animals, right? People will say, but uh, I don't know about that. Um, and you know, it, I, and again, I, I'm not an expert on, on shepherding, but I did do a little reading on this to try and figure out, like, what's a reasonable amount of sheep for a shepherd to have to oversee? If you're out in an open country, how many can one guy effectively oversee? And one of the things that I read said, about a hundred, about a hundred, somewhere in that vicinity. I think that's interesting because when you look at this portion of Scripture, you know, and Jesus is giving this example, what does he say here? You have a shepherd, and he's got a hundred sheep. I don't even know why I did other research. I should have just stuck with the Like, oh, about a hundred. Oh, you mean like it says in Luke 15. Maybe I should have just stuck with what the Scripture said, right? But a, a reasonable number, apparently, for a shepherd to have to oversee is about a hundred or so, right? And at the end of the day, Picture the shepherd, you know, he gathers them all. Maybe there's a pen of some kind that he gathers them in. And he's doing a head count. He's looking to see, do we have the same amount right now that we started the day with? One, two, 87, 88, 97, 98, 99. Wait, did I, am I missing one? Let's do it again. Count again. It's like, I'm missing one, right? So Jesus speaks of a shepherd here in this example coming to the realization that one of his sheep is lost. Now, does a good shepherd say, well, you know what, (laughs) 99 made it back, good enough. I mean, my wife and I, we have four kids, and we often joke, uh, you know, like, one of these days we're going to just forget one of them somewhere, right? We always thought that when they were little, what if we do that? And I was like, ah, if we come back with 75% of them, that's still good, right? That's still a good number. You know, a good shepherd wouldn't say that. That's not funny, right? Good shepherds shouldn't joke about that sort of thing. And here you have Jesus speak of the shepherd in this example, coming to the realization that one of the sheep is lost. And so that caring shepherd, he goes after that missing sheep. 
He seeks it out, and the Scripture tells us he carries it back. And he even invites his friends and his neighbors to rejoice with him. That's what the Scripture tells us. That's the picture Jesus is trying to paint as far as what a caring shepherd looks like and what a shepherd ought to do if he cares for his sheep. But again, what sort of deeper truths do you suppose that Christ wanted anyone to hear, anyone who was hearing this parable to understand, whether they be his critics or whether they be part of his family? What does he want us to understand from what he's saying here? Well, I think one of the things that he's trying to communicate here is the fact that as our great shepherd and overseer of our souls, He's not waiting around for the lost to find Him. He's not just waiting around for the lost to find Him. Rather, He comes looking for them. And what are we celebrating during this time of year? The fact that Christ came to this earth. The fact that He was born in the flesh. The fact that He interjected Himself into all aspects of the human experience in order to reveal Himself to lost humanity and rescue anyone who was willing to trust in Him. That's what Christ has done on our behalf. And if Christ didn't seek us, we would never have come to know Him. Now, how can I make a statement like that? If Christ didn't seek us, we would not have come to know Him. You would not be here worshiping Him this morning. We would not be here speaking about Him as we look at the Scriptures that He's given to us. We would not know Him. In fact, we're reminded in the book of Romans of something rather important. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. In our natural state, we were not looking for Him. We weren't looking for Him. He came looking for for us. And I think that makes a big difference in our perspective. We weren't seeking God. He came looking for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and get wise and all of a sudden start looking for Him. Scripture tells us that's not what we were doing, and it also tells us that wasn't the inclination of our hearts. We weren't in that spot. That's not even a need you realize that you have until Christ makes that need apparent to you. He came and found us while we were covered in the filth of living in the pit that we had started to call home. We didn't realize we needed Him. We didn't realize that we needed Him to fill the void in our souls instead of trying to use things that were killing us to try and fill that void. And yet Jesus, He loved us enough to find us and to offer Himself to us. And that's what He's demonstrating here while he's eating this meal with the tax collectors and the sinners. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes found so unpalatable. It disgusted them that Christ sought the lost. It disgusted them that he as a caring shepherd were going after those that seemed so distant from him. They criticized it, but Christ did it anyway. He came seeking the lost because the lost were not looking for him. There's one other thing Jesus illustrates in this portion of Scripture, and that's this. And hopefully I typed up this slide correctly. But the truth is, your heart is revealed by whatever you celebrate. Your heart's revealed by what you celebrate. Look again at verses 8, 9, and 10. This is what they say. It says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the Christmas season is a time of year where, uh, I mean, we're surrounded by celebrations of all different kinds, right? You know, churches celebrate, employers celebrate, families celebrate, students celebrate. Some people celebrate their financial bonuses or the food that they've gotten that's kind of like a special food that they only order during this time of year. Some people are celebrating gifts or quality time with with family or much-needed rest. And all of those things are very enjoyable things. Those are all things that in and of themselves are fine. But for those who know Jesus, we're given the privilege to celebrate His sacrificial intervention in our lives. In Christ, the lost are found. That's truly what we're called to celebrate. And I think that the things we celebrate can be quite revealing about what's actually going on in our heart. And in this portion of Scripture, you have Jesus in this parable sharing about a woman who finds her lost coin. And what he does is he's demonstrating, as he sets up this idea here, he demonstrates that that object was of great value to her. Now, a silver coin would have been something of great value to a woman living in that particular era, particularly if she didn't have very many options by which she could supply her financial needs. And it was very difficult for women to supply their own financial needs during the era in which Christ was doing ministry here. And assuming that these coins were essentially her life savings, you can imagine the frantic nature that would take place as somebody's trying to find one-tenth of their life savings that's now lost somewhere in a house. And by the way, what were floors typically like back then? You know, here we have carpet, or we have tile, or we have wood. You know, in that context, you'd have dirt, or maybe you'd have some straw. Where'd the whole concept of a threshold come from? You'd put one of those at at your door, a threshold, to keep all the thresh in. It would hold the thresh in. So it would be very easy if you dropped something on that to be like, where did it go? It's disappeared into the material we have on the floor here, or just the dirt that we have caked here on the floor. So the woman begins frantically searching in Christ's example here. And I think we could also empathize with the fact that, you know, when, when when Christ describes the relief she feels and the joy she expresses when the coin is found. That's something that we would connect with. That's something we'd certainly understand. But the bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about here isn't really about personal finances. It's not about a coin. He's just using this to paint a picture of of what we value, of what's important to us. And he's ultimately talking about lost people being connected to their Creator. Because keep in mind the whole context of what this is being shared in. He's being criticized for spending time with lost people. He's being criticized for enjoying the fact that he's enjoying a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And he's trying to illustrate through multiple parables here the necessity of reaching out to the lost and the joy that you experience when they're found if your heart really is in the right spot. So you have here Christ demonstrating the great value that even one human life has in the eyes of God. The previous parable, you have one sheep that's lost, and the shepherd goes looking just for the one sheep. And in this, the secondary parable here, you have one coin that's lost. Not even multiple coins, you have one coin that's lost. And you see the diligent search for just the one coin. So he's demonstrating the great value that even one human life has to God. And Christ wanted to make it clear to us that even the holy angels rejoice 
when a man or when a woman repents of their unbelief, and when they trust in Christ, and when they walk with Christ by faith. This is something that does not go unnoticed by heaven. I came across an article not that long ago that spoke about how common it is for people to minimize their value to God and to go through various seasons of their life, particularly in the month of December, the article was stressing, convinced that they are unloved and overlooked. Now, I don't know if that's something that you've ever wrestled with, if you've ever wrestled with the emotions of feeling unloved or overlooked. I don't know if that gets heightened for you during this month, or if there's another time of the year where you feel a little bit more adept to thinking about those things. But if you've been preaching a message to your heart that tells your heart that you are unnoticed by God, or unloved by God, or not valuable to God, how does that message line up with what this passage states? And if the angels of heaven rejoice when just one person is found, and if Christ was willing to experience the critique of all of these influential people during the course of his earthly ministry while he was seeking the lost, should we ever allow our hearts to adopt the belief that we are unseen or unloved or lacking in value in the eyes of God? Is that a message that we should preach to our hearts? I don't know if you ever struggle with that, but if you ever struggle with that, hold it up to the light of what Christ tells us here in Luke chapter 15. And as we finish up this morning, I just want to show you three other scriptures that illustrate the very same thing. The first is in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, where it says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, Notice that, the great love which he had lo- with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Does it seem like we're on God's mind? Does it seem like the Lord values those He has created? Does it seem like He takes delight in having good things in store for those that know Him through Jesus Christ? Look at what it tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. It says there, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to show us one other Scripture in just a second, but before I flip to it, um, I don't know if you spent what books of the Bible you spent a lot of time reading, and, and if there are books of the Bible that you don't really spend a whole lot of time looking at. There's one book in the Bible... Uh, I was listening to a musician years ago, uh, Rich Mullins. He said uh, that when he was given a Bible as a child hit by his grandmother, his grandmother actually cut one book of the Bible out of it. And she said, I'll give this one to you when you're married. And it was the book of Song of Solomon. And if you've ever read the book of Song of Solomon, you understand what his grandmother was thinking. She's like, when you're married, I'll give you this. And he said she never gave it to him. <laughs> um, but the book of Song of Solomon, it really describes... You know, the, the picture we're given there is like the, the intimate love between Solomon and his bride. 
And many theologians, as they look at that, they say, you know, the idea being conveyed here, one of the big points that we can take from that is it gives us a glimpse, at least on a human level, of the love that the Lord has for His people. So consider this verse from Song of Solomon in regard to, just picture the Lord saying this to you, knowing that this is how He sees us in His Son. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Scripture makes it clear to us that when the Father sees us as we've trusted in Christ, that the Father is seeing the Son in us. And that as He delights in the Son, so too does He delight in anyone who is in the Son. So again, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This is what Scripture illustrates about the depth of the love of God for His people. And this is a message that our hearts do well to hear over and over again. The hard-hearted during the course of Christ's earthly ministry weren't interested in this. They didn't have a heart for those who were lost. They didn't care about the lost. All they cared about was their own prestige or being told how wonderful they were, being patted on the back or being esteemed in their society. But when it came to lost people, their goal was to avoid them and to criticize those who dared spend time with them. But when we look at what Scripture tells us, Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. Christ came seeking us. And when He finds us, He carries us on His shoulders. He imputes His righteousness to us, we who had no righteousness of our own. And He calls us one of His own forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together this morning. Lord, thank You so much for what You illustrate to us in it. You illustrate the fact that that You rejoice, that all heaven rejoices when one who is lost is found. And Lord, You weren't waiting around for us to all of a sudden get smart, and all of a sudden grow wise, and all of a sudden realize we needed You. In fact, our hearts were so lost, our hearts were so darkened by sin, our hearts were so distant from You that that was never going to happen. We were wandering around, crashing into things, living as if You didn't even exist, trying to fill the void in our hearts with things that really were just killing us not interested in who you are or what you seek to do in a life. And it's into that context that you interjected yourself. So Lord, we're grateful that during the Christmas season here, we get to look at portions of Scripture like this that remind us of your mission, that remind us why you came to this earth to begin with. You came to seek the lost, and you rejoice when the lost are found. So Lord Jesus, thank you for finding us. Thank you for not leaving us in the mess that we were content to walk in. Thank you for showing us our need for you. And we pray, Lord, that not only today and not only during this season would this be the type of thing that rings true in our hearts and on our minds, but that this would be the type of thing, that this would be the type of message that we preach to ourselves on our best days and on our worst days. Lord, we pray that this would be the type of thing that would be the dominant message that we hear over and over again as we trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness and for the privilege to be able to carve out a little time at the start of our week to meditate on these truths this morning. We're grateful for this privilege, Lord, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.